Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yevamot, daf Yudalad, page 14. I really love the beginning of this daf of Gemara. It's a continuation of a discussion about Loti uh, Godadu and this machlokas between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel that we see in our Mishnah about Yibam and Chalitza. But yet the Mishnah also reaffirms for us that despite this machlokas about certain cases where Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed whether or not Yibam and Chalitza was appropriate, they still allowed each other to marry uh, between sort of the two houses. Um, and it's pretty amazing because one of the things that comes out is that they're actually, because of this uh, different understanding, uh, there actually was a you know different understanding about the children produced of these marriages. And according to Beit Hillel, there actually was a risk of mamzerus, where I don't like using the English translation. Mamzerus generally or typically translated as a bastard, but really what a mamzer is, it's, it's a halachic status uh, for people who are born of a erva, uh, a, you know, a, a non-allowed uh, sexual relationship. And the practical piece of it is, is that they're not allowed to marry. They sort of don't have full potential marriageable rights uh, within the Jewish people. And that's really what a mamzer is. So we need to understand that it's not just a simple machlokas, that one says you can do yibam chalitza, one says you can't. It had some real practical implications. And as much as that Mishnah sort of presents this very nice kumbaya version of that machlokas, this stuff really starts to get into the weeds of what is practically did it mean. Um, and also the top of this stuff refers to a bunch of other Gemaras, uh, some of which we've seen, some of which we'll see later on, that I think just makes it a fun daf to learn because it's a great example how the Gemara, if you don't know one, if you don't know a story from somewhere else, you're really not going to understand this story. And so we're in the middle of this machlokas between Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan. Reish Lakish, who was upset because he said, you know, how can there be different practices of Loti Godadu, although he doesn't bring the example of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Um, and so Rish Lakish basically at the top of our dot starts by saying to Rabbi Yochanan, Mis farat asu Beit So he says, do you really believe, Rabbi Yochanan, that Beit Shammai actually acted according to their statement? In other words, maybe they shouldn't have acted according. Yes, they have their opinion about the Yibun Chalitza, but really they sort of, they yielded to Beit Hillel. They followed Beit Hillel. Lo asu Beit Shammai Kedivrehem. And Rish Lakish maintains they actually didn't, uh, follow or didn't do exactly as their psaq. They they sort of, you know, in the end, really followed according to Beit Hillel. And Rabbi Yochanan says, no, Beit Shammai did exactly, uh, you know, Beit Shammai did according to their opinion. They did practice that way. This is also an argument between Rabbi and Shmuel. Right? Where Rav says Beit Shammai yielded to Beit Hillel and did not follow according to their opinion. And Shmuel said, no, they actually, they did act according to their opinion. And so then the Gemara wants to explore this a little bit more. And it says, Amat, right? Uh, what, you know, when did this question happen, right? And what they're going to do is give some type of historical context. Um, and this will be based on a Gemara that we learned previously in a Reuven uh, on uh, page Yud, on Daf Yud Gimel, which talked about that story about um, elu, uh, you know, um, elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, right? Vahalacha ke rabbi, uh, ke beit hello, excuse me, right? So this is the Gemara that we learned in a Reuven that talked about the machlokas between beit hello and beit shamai, 
And a bot call came out and basically said, look, both of them are right, right? Both of these are the words of God, God, but ultimately, halacha can beit hillel, right? And it talked about why was halacha can beit hillel, the Gemara and Reuben, because beit hillel always made sure to teach beit shammai uh, before they taught their own opinion. So the Gemara here says, right, ilmale kodem bat call, right? That maybe uh, this happened before the bat call, right? In other words, that if we want to say that this, you know, this happened before the bat call, um, that, you know, that declared the halacha always had to be according to Beit Hillel, my time in demanda amar lo asu. Then what would the rationale be uh, of the person who said that Beit Shammai did not actually do according to their opinion? In other words, if it was before the bat call, Beit Shammai absolutely, you know, asu. Beit Shammai for sure could have done according to their opinion. The Elalachar Bakal, and if you want to say that this actually took place after the Bakal, my time in demanda amarsu, then how could the person who holds that bait the Beit Shammai actually acts according to their opinion, how could that be true after the Bakal? Because once the Bakal came and said Halacha Kabit Hillel, everybody has to follow according to the Bakal. So the Gemara goes on and says, Ibai Samakodam Bakal, if you want to say that this happened, right, uh before the Bakal, uh, but you also could say that maybe this happened after the bakal. So they're going to explore both possibilities. If you want to say this happened before the bakal, you could go and debate Hillel Ruba, right? And so it's before the bakal, but Beit Hillel was the majority of all the Chachamim. So the one who says that Beit Shammai didn't follow their opinion, the reason why is because you have to follow the majority. It has nothing to do with the bakal. And Beit Hillel was the majority, and so that's what they had to follow. Umanda Marsu, and the one who says that Beit Shammai did according, you know, still according to their uh, opinion before the Bakal, Kiaslinam Bataruba, right? You know, so, uh, you know, so what do we do about acting like the majority, right? Wouldn't they, wouldn't you still have to say Beit Shammai had to hold like the majority? So we say no, because here they were actually equal, right? Beit Shammai was known to be very analytical. Uh, and in fact, it says, right? That actually, Beit Shammai were actually sharper. So even though it was before the bat call, right? And even though Beit Shammai were not the majority, the reason why we could say that they were Asu is because they sort of were equal to, or maybe we could even say were sharper, um, then Beit Hillel, and so before the Bakal, they were allowed to follow their opinion. So that's the possibility of how this could all be. Uh, either that you want to say Beit Shammai didn't do according to their opinion or did do according to their opinion before the Bakal appear. Now we're going to explore what happened if we say that this was after the Bakal. If we want to say this was after the Bakal, so the one who says the Beit Shammai could, you know, uh, didn't do according to their opinion. Right, this makes sense because it was after the Bakal. Umanda Marasu, and the one who says that they did do after the Bakal, Rabbi Yeshua, he, this is according to the opinion of Rabbi Yeshua. So now here's another Gemara that you need to know, right? The first Gemara we referenced was this Gemara in Eruvin on Dafyud Gimel. Now we're talking about a Gemara in Babetzia, uh, page 59b, which is the famous story of Tanur Shalaknai. This is a famous machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim about a type of oven, a tanur, shell aknai. And they had a major machlokas over whether or not this tanur shell aknai uh, can actually contact Tuma. And uh, they go back and forth. Rabbi Eliezer tries to prove his opinion by having these miracles occur, occur and nobody wants to listen to him because the Chachamim feel opposite to him. 
And then finally, a backhole comes out and says, no, the halacha is actually like Rabbi Eliezer. And then Rabbi Yeshua comes and very famously says, lo bashamayim hi. Halacha is not decided with a backhole. It's not decided in shamayim. It's not decided with a heavenly voice. It's decided by people. So we don't really care what the backhole has to say. Backhole doesn't actually affect how we paskan halacha. And that's the important opinion of Rabbi Yeshua. So even if this backhole came and said halacha is like, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai still can do what they want to do because we don't paskin like a bakal. We don't make halacha follow like the bakal. And this is the opinion of Rabbi Yeshua. But again, you have to know this Gemara in Baba Metziah uh, in order to understand this Gemara. Damar ein mashkichim bebakal, right? Because we say we, uh, we disregard uh, we basically disregard a heavenly voice. It, it, it can't give us, it, it, it can't tell us what the halacha is. Um, and so I, I just thought this was a wonderful uh, passage, uh, you know, uh, that really sort of describes, you know, that you have to know sort of all these other uh, different halachot, uh, sorry, different gemarot. You have to know all these other gemaras uh, in order to understand. And then we'll just do a little bit more. Umand Amra Asu, right? According to the one who says, that Beit Shammai acted according to his opinion. Karinan kan lo ti go to do. So then we go back to our original question, which we started on yesterday's stop, which is, but we still have this issue of lo ti go to do, right? From this Pasuk in Devarim chapter 14, verse one, which says we're not allowed to have, you know, factions within Judaism, that we're supposed to really be united. Lo tasu agudot agudot. Don't make agudot agudot. Now, I just wanted to read this part also, because if you remember this language of agudot agudot, we see in the Gemara of Chagiga uh, on page three, which I had told everybody when we learned Chagiga, is really my favorite passage of Gemara, which talks about Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah, and he describes what is a person supposed to do in the Beit Midrash when they hear all these agudot, agudot, all these different factions where one says something is pasul, one says it's kash, you know, kasher, one says it's mutar, one says it's a asur, and he basically says in the end, right, that a person basically has to practice or learn how to have an open heart to listen to a variety of other opinions. But I love that it has that same language there. To me, this is a little bit of a hint to the Gemara in Chagiga, right, that says, lotasu agudot agudot, that you can't have uh, factions, right? Amar Abayas, so Abayas says, ki amrinin loti go to do, when we say loti go to do, kagon shte bate dinim biirachat, so we say really what it means is, is that you have two bateitin in one city, right? Uh, in one city. One beitin is going to pass on like beit shamai. We'll say the halacha is like beit shamai. One beitin will say the halacha is like beit hillel. Right? But if you have two different courts in two different cities, you don't have a problem. Each city can sort of do uh, what they uh, what they want to do. Then Rava comes and he basically says, Amrle Rava, Habit Shamayabit Hilo Kishte Bate Din Biurachatami. He says, Yeah, but Abai, you know, actually this machlokas is like having uh a two um bateidin uh in one city, right? And so then Ella Amar Rava, Ki Amrinan, Loti go to do, Kigom Baitin Biarachat. Plag marine kidivre bait shamay, u plag marine kidivre bait hillel, about shte bate dinim biurachat, le sambat. So rather, Rava says, when we say, when we talk about this prohibition of loti go to do, we're talking about a case where there's a court in one city, right? And a section rules in according with a statement of bait shamay, 
and a section rules in, uh, in accordance with Beit Hillel. In other words, the Beit Din doesn't seem uh, to follow one opinion. They sort of go back and forth between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Um, but if you have, uh, but if you basically have two courts in one city and one follows Beit Shammai and one follows Beit Hillel, uh, that's considered to be okay. So, uh, you know, I, I, what I like about this Gemara and this whole DAP is, yes, we have our Kumbaya moment. And, and I know you're going to talk a little bit about this more, you know, from the Mishnah that we had on yesterday's DAP. But ultimately, this DAP is really trying to be like, okay, but practically, how did this work? Like, it's not enough to say like, oh, they married within each other. Because there was a real consideration about Mamzerus and, you know, the status of the children born from some of these marriages that were allowed or not allowed. And, you know, you can't just say like, oh, sure, they all married each other. The Gemara is going to get into more detail about this, that maybe they warned if there was really a question about Mamzerus, they would tell each other, but otherwise they would marry each other. Um, but, you know, I, 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 you know, but the point is, is that ultimately they do figure out a way to sort of navigate this and get along. You don't see sort of their malign. I think that's the point of the mission. They're not maligning each other. They're not bad-mouthing each other. They do figure it out. This Gemara takes the time to figure out how they practically, um, uh, you know, figure it out. But again, from a meta point of view of, of how we learn Gemara, this is just a wonderful daf because you have to really understand so many other Gemaras, right? This Gemara in Eruvin, this Gemara in Baba Matia. I think there's even a hint to the Gemara in Chagiga in really to understand the full richness uh, of this entire death. Um, I'm going to take it a little bit to the next bit, which is kind of a sidebar on the on the interaction or the discussion of the Machlokio, the disputes between Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, because part of the discussion, of course, is how do we live with this kind of dispute, right? And I know you're, Dana, you've just touched on this, right? The question of how did Beit Shammai versus Beit Hill live out their different approaches you know, did they live differently? And the answer does seem to be yes. And the Gemara here gives us a whole slew of other incidences where indeed people did differently based on where they lived or based on their, you know, circum- circumstances that were not the particulars of the halachic case. Tashma, in the place of Rabbi Lezer, meaning that's where he was the, the posek, right? They would cut down the trees on Shabbat to prepare charcoal, right, to make, now what do they need for this? They would make pchamim b'shabat, they would come, they would prepare the charcoal, lasot barzel, to make iron, and then presumably there's a need for that um, if you needed a brit milah on Shabbat. But, but, the, but again, some of these details, as you've just said, your Dana, sometimes you need to know everything to know anything. Um, the details of why they would be doing this are less left out. It just says that in the place of Rebbe Lezer, they would in fact cut down the trees to make the charcoal to make the iron. And in the place, the locale of Rabbi Yossi Aglili is a very famous position, right? They would eat their chicken with meat, with, with milk. They didn't treat chicken as meat, as we do nowadays. They treated, treated it as milk. And so you don't have a basar bachalav, you don't have a meat and milk kind of issue when it comes to chicken. I think a lot of people would find that very convenient today. Meaning... In Rabbi Yossi Aglili's town, people followed Rabbi Yossi Aglili. Elsewhere, no. So the Gemara goes on to explain that, well, yes, that business with the cutting down the trees on Shabbat for the charcoal, for the iron, was true in the location of Rabbi Lezer, but not in the location, locale, really, of Rabbi Akiva, 
right? That's where they would not do it. If you could do it before Shabbos, you don't do it on Shabbat. And if, you're, if your whole need to do it is because you've got a mitzvah of a brit milah, meaning the odds are really high that you know at least eight days in advance, you know, not at least, a good eight days in advance that um, that you have this mitzvah coming. So deal with it on Friday. Don't deal with it on Shabbat. At least that's the, the approach, the general overarching approach of Rabbi Akiva. So then what's, what's this trying to, sh- to say? So the position here is that we've got different places and that in different places, people did different things. And there's no violation if you're following the, the given halachic practice in the location that that is what is done. It's a karila, my karila. And so then the, well, then the Gemara goes into a whole discussion of why they're asking this, you know, in these cases. Why are they bringing these cases? And the Gemara answers, Maybe you would think, because Shabbat, Hilchot Shabbat, and the punishments with regard to the violation of Shabbat are so strong, so extreme, um, uh, stringent, right, that you might want to say, that it's as if it's all one locale once it comes to Hilchot Shabbat. You might think that the different practices of one location versus another location are not relevant. Kamashma, and therefore we learn that, in fact, we do have these cases where as you know, great folks as Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Akiva would handle it differently, and they would paskin differently, and the people in their places would follow their respective, the respective local psaq, um, halachic decisions. So the point being that, well, the, the implication here, I would say, is that, yes, indeed, Beit Shammai sometimes did, you know, when Beit Shammai and Beit Hill had different differences of approach, in the locale of Beit Shammai, they did the Beit Shammai psaq, and in the locale of Beit Hillel, they did the Beit Hillel psaq. Now, I want to just make one more comment on the Beit Hill Beit Shammai story, as we discussed it yesterday, right? We talked about the fact that, you know, they they had these pretty extreme disagreements that even had implications for the moms or status of future children, right? And I agree with you, your data. I would not say that, you know, if, if the English term for bastard generally means, uh, the definition generally is one who is born out of wedlock, then I think it's very clear that this is a, you know, really a misnomer. Halachically, there might be, there are issues with bearing a child out of wedlock, but it doesn't have anything to do with the, fu- the child's ability to marry future um you know, non-mamzerim, for example. We'll talk about mamzerim in some other, you know, in much greater detail in some other context. But the point here is that we understand that issues of marriage and, you know, whether you accept the marriage or the divorce, for example, has real ramifications for what comes next. So if, in fact, we understand that the that the houses of Shama and Hill still would marry each other, then it seems that they're kind of undermining all of these piske halacha, all of these halachic rulings that are so divergent from each other. So the Gemara here on towards really towards the end of Amabet on this stuff says, well, in fact, you know, there were times, right, where they, it cites the Mishnah, right, so that we understand that they would not hold off marrying the women of each house. To teach us that really they had affection and camaraderie, you know, between each other, amongst each uh, amongst the, the groups, right? That they were not, um, there was it wasn't an animosity because they had halachically different approaches. And then it says, this fulfills the verse in Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, 
that the truth and the peace, which generally speaking, we have a verse in Tehillim that says otherwise, right? That they, in fact, truth and peace can get along. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Nimnu hain min havadai, velom nimnu min hasafek. So the Gemara here, Rabbi Shimon, you know, he's named, he says, well, really what they did is they didn't marry each other in cases where they were certain that the answer, that the, that the Psaq was, you know, yes versus no, meaning where they really did have that divergence of opinion that it would have a, a certainty for each respective approach then they didn't actually marry, not in those cases. But but when there was a question, when there was an uncertainty with regarding to the status of the person, you know, then they would say, you know what, we're going to forego the concern of the doubt, of the uncertainty, and we're going to allow the marriage to take place. The point here then is, you know, that there was um, upholding of the respective halakhic approaches, and yet they, you know, tried to not let, let it get in their way too much. Um, okay, I think that's it for this daf. I mean, the daf itself continues, and the Gemara does explore a little bit further into the opinion here of Rabbi Shimon, but I think that what I wanted to make sure that we are aware of here is it doesn't mean that they, what did you say yesterday, Yerdina Kumbaya, right? That it's not, it's not that everything was just everybody all one big happy family. They did live by their different respective uh, halakhic approaches, and they tried not to let it get in the way, certainly when there wasn't, um, you know, an absolute uh, requirement, let's say, that they do so. Yeah, and I, I, what I appreciate about this page is, you know, I, I taught the Gemara in a Ruben and the quoted today, and I definitely have taught it in a much more, as we keep calling it, a kumbaya way. Um, but this stuff gave me a much deeper appreciation for what did it mean practically, and I agree with you. I think it's still land same place. They figured it out. They made an effort to work it out in a way that made sense for both sides. And to me, the emphasis is it was worked out. Doesn't mean that they completely ignored each other's opinions, but they worked it out in a respectful way. I think the very fact that we can have a tradition that they married each other, you know, that the groups married amongst themselves, right? Within, across the groups, right? even though it might not have been each and every couple, right? That there might've been times where they would have to say, not this one, uh-uh. But the fact that we have an inheritance that says that they, you know what? They married each other. I think that also speaks to the fact that there was at least that effort was going on and that they were open to it and they were working for it as opposed to a heritage of great animosity that we might've thought would have been there. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the DAP in our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.